This is the 10th of the 2nd, 13, and the talk is on Buddhism and its answers to life's mystery. This is just the beginning of the talk, so it's the preamble, as we call it. This is a series of talks, and I'm mainly interested in giving the foundation to the proper understanding of Buddhist meditation. The meditation is Buddhist and it's infused or integrated with the Western occult tradition of the Blavatsky, Bailey and Helena Rorich background, the Theosophical Society. So it's a certain type of esoteric tradition that reveals the, the mysteries of Shambhala, the Kingdom of God, what enlightenment really is. And it's not based on Kabbalah or Rosicrucianism. Though the Rosicrucian philosophy and the, the Bailey Blavatsky are very similar, they, they, they stem from each other. But there's some modern Rosicrucian schools like Max Heindel that uses Blavatsky's writings as, as a foundation for what they do. What I'm interested in is developing a series of teachings and giving the meditation teachings that actually awakens perceptions. You can read all these books, you know, like my books, the Blavatsky and all the other books, all these other religious books, but it's not going to teach you much. It feeds knowledge. It may help you develop wisdom and some understanding of life. This always gives you that sort of understanding. But the real wisdom, the real experience happens in meditation. It happens in the visions that come in meditation and then the teachers that come to you in meditation and the great beings you see. So the books, the background knowledge, it's like if you're going to a chemistry course, you can read all of the text on chemistry, but until you do all the experiments and play with the chemicals and burn your fingers with acids, you don't really understand the science. And it's the same in this particular field and until you do the meditation. And you don't understand what the books are really about, especially with something like a field you know, like Buddhism, because Buddhism is based on meditation. It's derived from the Hindu philosophy, from the Hindu sannyasin philosophy, where there was mendicants, people walking and doing extreme yoga and uh, trying to gain enlightenment through much extreme yoga. Meditation in itself cannot produce much if you don't have a teacher that can guide you in meditation, explain to you what is happening and guide you to enlightened beings. The whole purpose of meditation is not just to, to produce an empty space in your mind or to feel good or to produce a few exhilarating experiences or to get some visions or impressions. Um, the whole purpose of meditation is to alter your worldview, to produce what Buddhism is called enlightenment, to give you higher insights into the nature of life, the nature of death, what happens in the life after death, and um, reincarnation experiences, something, sometimes the future, and to work upon yourself so that everything that relates to you is understood completely internally as well as externally and to see the way that you are evolving over a sequence of lives. Uh, what is it that makes enlightenment? It's, it's a whole transformation. It's not just 
there for you know a bit of peace of mind so that you can meet you know the problems of these difficult times that most people live in now so it's this process that leads to enlightenment that I'm concerned with and which is what I want to teach. I don't mind if people come and learn basic meditation for just to help them, you know, to, to learn how to breathe and learn how to be quiet internally, learn how to control the emotions. This makes them a better planetary citizen. But meditation is also tied in with what in Buddhism is called the Bodhisattva path. This is the Mahayana Buddhist stream. A bodhisattva is one who has, in the Buddhist philosophy, made a vow to never cease striving until all sentient beings have been released from suffering, and only then will they gain enlightenment. It's the, the path of compassion, of always giving to all beings, and only through giving can you yourself rise into the higher domains to enlighten the the path of compassion is, is quite important. The Sanskrit terminology is called karuna. This uh, bodhisattva path is what also the meditation is about. The form of Buddhism that I teach is, of course, Mahayana, which means the great vehicle. Maha means great, yana is vehicle. Especially the Tibetan philosophy, of course. I have been a Tibetan monk. Tibetan philosophy, there's four main schools. There's the Gelukpa, which is the yellow hat, and the Dalai Lama follows this particular form of Buddhism. It's reformed Buddhism, uh, founded by a, a great being called Tsongkhapa in the 5th century. The yellow hat school, for instance, of, of, of the Dalai Lama, they do a lot of debating. It's called consequential school, so they debate with each other. And, it's, uh, and through debating the high philosophy, they gain much wisdom, much understanding, and I've got to study the books in order to overcome somebody else's logic. Um, there's quite a, a formula, and so they spent years just, just learning how to debate. So, so you can see this is very much the training of the mind. And the um, Kagyupta sect is a red hat sect, and that was founded by Milarepa about a thousand years ago. And this is a form of Buddhism that, that's very much based on meditation. And then the earliest form of the Buddhist sect is called Nyingma, which was established by uh, Guru Rinpoche in the picture behind you there, that little one, is, is this particular um, great being. And he uh, was called the second Buddha, and he more or less established a, a Buddhism in Tibet. He was invited to come to Tibet about 800 AD because the main teacher that was sent to Tibet, Pangarachita, could not convert the Tibetans because the indigenous religion, Bompa, they were into a black magic form. And so there was much magic and much uh, attack against the Buddhist religion. And Guru Rinpoche, which is his other name, Padmasambhava in Tibet, Rinpoche just means the precious guru. And so he was a tantric Buddhist, he was the greatest tantric Buddhist of his time. And so he had developed all these psychic powers, which in, in Buddhism is called siddhis. So siddhi means psychic powers. And so he was sent to Tibet to exorcise Tibet of the demons, of the spirits of the black magicians, and to establish areas that were clean of this influence 
so that the white dharma, as it's called, could be established. And the first monasteries, like at Samye, which was the first monastery in Tibet, so the monastery system could be established. And then the teachers could come, being protected from psychic emanations from attack, and uh, establish the religion, teach. With meditation, of course, you're looking at the inner universe, your chakras, what we call the nadi system, the energy field, the energy bodies. So this whole world of chakras and of understanding what the chakras are, understanding what a human being really is. And, of course, you all know that this body is always transforming. It's never the same. It's always changing. It's part of what in Buddhism is called maya, illusion. And, and we live in a transitory world. It's always changing. It's phantasmagorical. And people get attached to it, and we call it samsara, uh, the wheel of birth and death. It's birth, death, and all the time. And people think that this world is real, and when in fact it's illusional. And so the whole philosophy of Buddhism is to overcome the illusionality of samsara, to gain reality. And reality is defined as shunyata, in, in one way of main defining, which is the void. Now, I'll try to explain these terms later. So you have to uh, understand, as you can see in this particular world, what people learn in this materialistic world that we have here is materialism. They think that only that what you see and touch and feel and taste is real. Whereas for Buddhism, and of course Hinduism, it's all illusional. Uh, what is real is what comes by way of the mind. What you see and touch, is, these are what's called the five sense consciousnesses. And they're interrelated by the intellect. But for the Buddhist world, you know, like all of these deities, these are all aspects of mind. They're peaceful or wrathful attributes of mind. All is mind in Buddhism. And Descartes said the same thing 2,000 years after the Buddha. But all is mind. When you start to control your mind and understand and analyze your mind, which is what meditation is all about in reality, then you start to understand the subtler forces that constitute what phenomena is. You'd actually do nuclear physics without needing all of that equipment that nuclear physicists need because you do your physics internally. You can see the atom, you can see all of the energies that make up space. And then in meditation, you begin to control the energy fields of all phenomena. And therefore you control substance and the nature of the manifestation of phenomena. The nature of control of the nature of manifestation of all phenomena is what they call cities, these psychic powers. And for instance, the, the Buddhist monks can fly through the air, or, so there's many stories about that and things like walks through rocks there's you know of course telepathy and clairvoyance and clairaudience this is all part of what is natural in Tibet now you know when you go back away from this modern era say earlier than 150 years ago all of that all that history is really the history of magic people you know people were, you know women mainly were burnt at the stake uh, for witchcraft in 
medieval, you know, in, in recent, relatively recent European history. And that's just the West, but, you know, all the way through the world from then onwards, it's the history of magic. Black magic versus white magic. It's all got to do with the control of these types of forces. So what you learn in, in Buddhism, in yoga, in meditation, is this form of magic. And for the Buddhist, there's no sort of contention, there's, there's no argument about the psychic side, about this magical side. It, there's only this Western materialistic world is their problem. But before that, and get magic and psychic powers and all of these some type of phenomena as just part of their living. As you can see, I'm mainly talking about Tibetan Buddhism at this stage. In Tibet, one of the beautiful things about that particular area is very high up in the Himalayan mountains. The whole country was relatively sparse. There are not many people. And they lived uh, very simply, the yak herders, and that was the indigenous Tibetans. So they didn't have all of these problems of pollution and cars and television and, you know, your computer age and all of this stuff to confuse their lives. It was just simply, uh, they were very, very much in tune with all of nature and the rarefied atmosphere of the high Himalayan mountains facilitated the development of psychic powers, of magic, and assisted the great yogis to gain the highest transcendental power. So that's one reason why Tibet is quite unique, quite special, because it was easier there to develop these awarenesses because of the society and the atmosphere and the freedom from pollution. What is sort of said in the Bible about Jesus and his ability to heal and after he died on the cross and you know Thomas had to touch his wounds and to see that he was actually living even though he died. You know, he's a body of flesh, you know, Jesus ate some fish and demonstrated that he was just as physical as everyone else, even though he just appeared in their room. But so for the Christians this is the, the concept or this is the, the Son of God because he can do these miracles. But for the Tibetans, these types of miracles, virtually every yogi could do. And it was not just the white magicians, not just the, the, the practice of Buddhism, it's the practice of the black as well, the, the, the bompa. They also had these magical powers. So you could go into bed and you could learn from the black path, like Milo Rapid did when he was young and he, wanted, he needed to kill his relatives because of what happened to him. And so he... You know, it's part of his story. He became Yogi, Tibetan's great saint. But before he became Tibet's greatest yogi, he was a black magician. So you can go and learn black magic or you can go learn the white dharma. So it was these powers. It was just the way that the powers were used that differs. One is for selfish purposes. One is for material aggrandizement, for making yourself more money, you know, controlling of sex and potency over women or whatever but it was this power for yourself over everything and over everybody to control their lives and generally the black magician of course can become very wealthy very powerful it's a, and many want this type of personal power and they use psychicism magic to do so and of course if we would go back to the witchcraft 
Of course, most of the women that were burnt, you know, something like five million or so over the few hundred years of this, it was mostly women. They weren't just burnt, they were drowned and whatever. You know, I won't go fully into the, into the Inquisition, but they, were, they didn't have these powers. They were mainly looking after children. Uh, children get sick, you know, heal them with herbs. Well, if you healed your children, then you were a witch. <laughs> um, you understand, so it was this sort of problem. But there was also much magic, much occultism. So what I'm sort of saying that this occultism in the West was almost always black magic. You know, if you were jilted by someone, you'd get the hex, the spells to attack your, the, that person's lover to do something harm to them psychically. That was very much part of the European tradition at that time. The court of Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Fifteenth, Louis the Sixteenth was all, you know, not wasn't just magic; it was also poisoning people. You know, you got you know magicians like Cagliostro that became very famous and Mesmer that uh, through psychic powers, but people flocked to them so they can learn these types of arts and how to make themselves rich. <laughs> so you understand there's these two streams, the black and the, and the white, and they're fighting each other. The, the white magicians the, in Buddhism, when you develop these psychic powers, you actually have to learn the protective arts, the spells in, in ancient Egypt. It was the same. Um, you had to learn many, many spells to protect yourself from evil influences. And likewise, in meditation, in the higher arts, once you start to develop these cities, you have to protect yourself from all sorts of psychic influences. You, you become a vehicle of light, a light bearer. That's the other thing to do with meditation. The meditation is you bringing into your consciousness, into your awareness, stronger and stronger energy. And the energy strides out of you, the negativities, the substance, the, the, the gross energies, the emotions and things like that, and then you have to deal with them, and then you transform or transmute those qualities. So what I'm sort of getting to was when Guru Rinpoche, and this is a long way back to, because I'm trying to get you an idea to the, the environment, the world that they lived in is completely different than the world, this materialistic world here. And for them, the psychic world is just natural, it's like for you, living here, thinking just in terms of you know, these material things, that's natural for you, but for them, you know, they fought in a different way. And it's very important to understand that world. And so to understand somebody like Guru Rinpoche and why he was, why he was you know, given a whole pile of gold by the king to come to Tibet to bring Buddhism. So... Uh, this Nyingma tradition is tantric, it specializes in magic, and it's not magic in the sense of the way people think in the West. It's white magic. It's the transformation of all the powers that, that govern phenomena, it's complete control and the right usage of it. So then there's one other form of going back to this talk of the four sects of Buddhism, which is called the Shakya. And that's not so predominant, and they have a type of hereditary system of for the way that their lamas evolve. Whereas with the other three sects, 
they, they think in terms of Rinpoche's. Now Rinpoche means precious one and they reincarnation of great ones. And basically the first Rinpoche in Tibet was one, the first Karmapa, who was the most senior the student of Milarepa's foremost disciple, who was called Gampopa. The first Karmapa was Gampopa's student. And when, when he was ready to die, he said, look for my next incarnation in such and such a place and uh, there you'll find me and so then his students went and found this little boy and because that's where the guru prophesied he would be and then the little boy had all the powers that they were looking for and so this whole Rinpoche system started by this tradition of the great ones when they die they say I will be born in such and such a place and you'll find me there or you'll find me in such a way but it very quickly became political because there was great power once you once you're enthroned then you were given monasteries and all the rest of it so I won't go fully into this but it became very very political and then abused the system but therefore you get the Dalai Lama who's the 14th incarnation of the same being according to Buddhism um, so he's incarnated 14 times because 14 times he said they'll be born in such a way and then they go out and look for him so you've seen the movies on this I'm sure you know like the little Buddha and whatever as I said it's been abused and it's not correct but it has its foundation in this type of world that they live in and of course believe in reincarnation now the Buddhists believe in reincarnation, but they think in terms of six realms. The way that the Buddhists think of a human being is, is in terms of a life stream, a consciousness stream, as I call it. You've maybe used uh, heard the, the band called Santana, but Santana anyway means this consciousness stream. <laughs> There's a stream of flowing of consciousness is, is Santana. So the consciousness stream when it leaves body can be born as an animal can be born in a human form it can be born into a sura on what i call the astral plane as a type of hungry ghost it can be born as a preta which is full of desire it can be born in the hell state or as a sura which is in a god state and so these these six domains now they not literally true and i explain in this book here the basis for this belief but it's not the way it actually is it has its truth and it has its falsehood as well now the same with the ability to be born into animals it's not possible for a human being to retrogress what in english is called metempsychosis to be born into an animal form uh, this is an animal form so when we incarnate into a human body the human body is the animal body it has animal like qualities these animal-like qualities are emotions they are developed by the animal kingdom you've seen dogs and how emotional they are uh, people like those dogs because they feed them emotions and the dogs jump on their laps and do all these sorts of things this is the animal body the tibetan representations of of all of these emotional qualities like in the tibetan book of the dead and the tanka behind you you find that you have humans with animal-like heads as their wrathful deities and these are samskaras the qualities that have been developed from past lives that you have to transform from the emotional animal-like form into the enlightenment attribute this world of the 
animal body. It's the human body and its emotions and the human principle that's reincarnating is the mind. Uh, it's this consciousness stream, right? So there's no such thing as rebirth into animals. In this book here, Calm and Rebirth of Consciousness, I have something like you know, a couple of chapters explaining all the reasons why this is an impossibility because this book's written for Buddhists who think in the literal interpretation of metempsychosis. So only in human form. And all of these other types of experiences like the God realm, the, the hell states, it's all in human form. When you die, all you do is leave this physical body. So the physical body is dead, right? It's gone. It's whatever they do of it, it's up to them. But you're up and you're looking down upon it and you're saying, God, did I live in that thing, right? And uh, most of you think that that's the reality. Uh, but in reality it's not and every night you get out of this body and you go have fun and then you go back into it and you say oh <laughs> another time another day again and again i've got to go into this clammy um, cold vehicle and activate it and and then you wake up and you suddenly think that this is the real when the real you is what's out of your body and in matter of fact you know as all you know you know one third of your life is asleep but most people not just physically are they you know when they go to sleep at night but they also brain dead almost they're not aware of the world around them as they are awake you know only using a tiny you know, one tenth of their brain cells according to science but psychically they 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 blind as what we call in buddhism ignorance they're ignorant of virtually everything that's happening around them. You know, if you develop clairvoyance, you'll see auras and you'll see the thoughts coming out of people. It's a far more vibrant universe, whereas people are completely oblivious of this world. And they're not even aware, you know, you're looking at the internet and you're seeing all the news, the, the true news that's happening on the internet. But if you're going onto the mainstream media and watching the television news, and the, then you get the lies that are taught to you. So they're not even aware of the reality of the world that they're living in. Most people don't understand science or uh, physics and, yeah, and the, the, the complexity of quantum electrodynamics, for instance, which is nuclear physics, you know, the, the reality of some atomic particles and what really makes up, you know, like Einstein's theory, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Energy and mass are interchangeable. So yeah, most people uh, have almost entirely blind to the greater reality around them and the only thing that they focused upon is their bodies and the immediate environment of their bodies the family the things that they're eating their, their drinks or whatever is giving them pleasure or sometimes pain and that's their world but it's such a tiny little portion of what is really happening to them and what's incarnate is this consciousness stream that, that's lived again and again and again in many, many lives of experience. And um, when you go into reincarnation, the rebirth, you'll see that one life you were you know, in Germany, another life uh, you were in, say, Tibet. Uh, you've had these, all of these lives come and go, come and go. And in most people's consciousness, the present day waking consciousness, all of that's forgotten. They've forgotten everything that's happened the night when they were asleep. You know, eight hours or so out of your body and it's all forgotten. 
maybe some tiny little glimmering of a memory of, of something that's come in a distorted fashion. And all the thoughts that are coming into your mind from out of, in this environment, you're not aware of. You don't know how you're being, your thoughts are being changed by that world, um, this psychic world. And so this Buddhism and meditation is to awaken you to that world. And so there's different, you know, these different um, schools of Buddhism, which I've just given you, say the three main schools in Tibet, they have their different ways of awakening you from the, the consequential school more to debate and argument to rhetoric and the Kagyul with the, the meditation tradition of Milarepa and then the Nyingma which is um, a meditation tradition but more focused upon magic, uh, on Tantra. Now the Nyingma is the highest of all of these methods but the ability to be converted into black magic is much greater. So there's a lot of Nyingma sorcerers. They're wearing the Buddhist robes, but in reality they're black magicians. And it's, you know, because that's their, their tradition. It's easy to be seduced by, according, you know, use the Luke Skywalker, the dark side of the force. <laughs> and so if you understand Darth Vader and how he was converted, then you understand the path of the black magic, uh, whereas you're learning to use lightsabers. So this whole tradition of India, this whole way of thinking of, and you can go from India all the way through to ancient Egypt and before that to Atlantis, this whole world view was one of magic and overcoming the natural forces of nature. When the, the Buddha was alive two and a half thousand years ago, in the environment that he lived in, it was a Hindu environment, and they were they were mainly following the Vedas and uh, the Upanishads. And there was a yoga tradition, but as I said, it was extreme asceticism. And the Vedas and the Upanishads, there was a lot of ritual and mantra that they had to do. So there was lots of ritual and mantra, and it depended on which caste in India. There's four castes, the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, and Sudras. So there's these various Depending on which caste you are, if you're a Brahmin, then, you're, then you followed the, the Vedas, you're, you, know, you, you lived a very generally holy life and so forth. Now, the, the Buddha was born into uh, Kshatriya, which was the, the warrior caste. Now, the warriors are the king, right? They, they conquer, they rule. And when they conquer countries, and they rule, and then their sons inherit, and so you get this kingdom formed, right? That's the warrior caste. And then the Brahmins are the religious caste that are supposed to advise them as to how to live their life and give, give good um, laws, good edicts, and all of that. And uh, they help them to build the beautiful temples and all the rest of it. And then the, the Sudras are the working class. So then there's the, the untouchables as well. The, so you have these, these four types of class, and it's almost impossible to get out of your class. Now, the Buddha himself, when he was born, and there's everything to do with Buddhism. See, the, the difference between here and the West, we, we have a type of consciousness where we like to put dates to things and specific detail about a person's lives. Now, somebody was born... 212 AD and they lived their life like this and this and this and they you know conquered the world or like the late Alexander the Great you know 
the third century BC. But in Buddhism and in Hinduism, the dates do not matter. And the factual information does not matter so much about what a person does either. What matters is the mythology, is the religious history, is what they accomplished in their meditation, in their psychic world, as well as on the physical plane. See, so you have, when you get a story, for instance, of the birth of the Buddha, you get his mother, Queen Maya, standing up, leaning on a tree, and an elephant came in through her side, and uh, she gave birth, and the elephant was the Buddha. To interpret these myths, you know, you have to actually understand the symbolism of all of the uh, the language that is used, whereas for the Western world, Westerners they don't think like that. They don't think in terms of the psychic world. They don't think in terms of the forces that is that is symbolised by the elephant, what is reincarnating or incarnating into her womb, and you know how she gave birth. And you know, some some um, myths say that he walked seven times as soon as he was born. He walked and did seven steps and said, you know, "I'm the conqueror of the, the universe," or whatever. But the problem now, Buddha was born as I said, Kshatriya, and his father was a a king of a local area in Nepal, Limbiri. And when the holy man came and looked at this young child, this baby, he said, this is, you know, by the marks on his body and whatever, that he will either become a world conqueror or a world conqueror spiritually. He's either going to become a great Buddha or a great Maharaja, right? And of course the king wanted the Buddha to become a great Maharaja, to, to conquer all of the kingdoms around. That's of course the way kings think, uh, being a Kshatriya. But of course we know that the Buddha was destined to become a spiritual world conqueror. But the king then said, in order to make the prophecy come through the way that I wish it, I'm going to surround my son with nothing but is what is pleasurable. He's not going to know anything about old age, death, sickness, any of these things. He's going to be living in a pleasure garden and be surrounded by nothing but the most beautiful women and youth that, that he could be with. And so the Buddha grew up in this pleasure garden, the type of lifestyle that most of the people here would love to be in. And he eventually had a wife uh, by the name of Yasudra. And there was guards around his pleasure palace to make sure that he did not go out of that. So it's something like a heavenly realm, a god realm. So you can imagine living like that. Uh, everything you could ever want for pleasure, but not seeing the real world. So that's the way the Buddha was brought up. Then he had a son through his wife, Yashodara, and the son was called Rahula. And one day he went out of his pleasure palace with his charioteer and he saw an old man and he said to the charioteer, what is this? I've never seen anyone like that. And uh, the charioteer said, well, everyone will get old. Uh, nobody's got to stay young. And of course, this was a great revelation for the Buddha. Uh, what? Old? And then, you know, he came back and had to think about this concept of growing old. Then he snuck out a couple of times and then the next time, you know, he saw a sick person and a corpse and then somebody wearing religious robes. And so every time he went out, he saw something he was not supposed to see. 
In other words, the world outside, the way it really is, people get sick. What? <laughs> Sickness, <laughs> disease, suffering, people die. You know, and of course, there's a religious person that's walking around, sort of, you know, a, a sadhu. So, quite easy to see because they're wearing yellow robes and very, very skinny bones and all that. So, then the Buddha inquired about these things, and so, so he learnt that that was what life was really about. It wasn't just a mass of girls around him and, and all those, you know, everything that, that was pleasurable, it was everything else. And he said, well, if this is what life is really about, what am I doing doing these things? And then, you know, he realized that his son was a fetter. So he decided to relinquish all of his jewels and all of his pleasurable things and become a sadhu. And so he took off his most you know, his beautiful clothes and all his jewels and rings and left them behind and just wore the, the sadhu's clothes and then went out with his charioteer to become a religious figure. When he became a sadhu, he became extreme sadhu. He had a following, mainly five uh, ascetic. You know, and you have pictures of the Buddha in this particular phase when all his bones mm -hmm. were showing through, you know, the mm -hmm. skin was just wrapped around his bones and, you know, this was and, you know, the, the, he'd eat um, his own feces and things like this. So and sort of inquiring after something like seven years of, of this, this type of life, he said, why is it that no matter how much severity and penance I do, meditation I do, I'm not one inch closer to enlightenment, not one inch closer to this goal? And so he asks this question inside him, and all his fellow sadhus said, well, just continue practicing. But he'd really seen that this was not getting anywhere. So basically his lesson was that the extreme, so you get from extreme pleasure mm -hmm. to extreme penance and suffering if you want. Mm -hmm. um, and so then he decided to sit under a tree, which nowadays is called the Bodhi tree. And he sat underneath this, this tree of wisdom. And a cowgirl then came past and offered him some curd, which is yogurt. And, and so he just said, well, I'm going to break my fast. And he decided, he drank the curd, he took this. And when he broke his fast, and in other words, started to eat again, then he sat underneath this tree for 49 days, and then battled the forces of Mara, the forces of illusion, the, the demons. They attacked him in every which way. There's all sorts of images of them, you know. You, you can imagine all the sorts of things that, that attack this, this young sadhu. And then finally he put his finger to the, to the ground and said, I'll take the earth as my witness. And anyway, he vanquished Mara. He vanquished the, these, all of these demons by his meditation and not falling victim to all of these illusions, these psychic illusions. Now, everyone that goes into meditation properly, if they don't have a proper teacher, will be assailed by what I call the forces of dark, the psychic projection, their own thoughts, their own animal-like nature. And they actually have to battle these, and they need a teacher to guide them through in order to cleanse themselves of these thoughts and then to become radiant. It's not like you can sit and become, become enlightened in a, a year or two. It, it actually is a whole process. 
uh, and it takes it depends on what you've achieved in your past lives. The Buddha did all this by himself without a teacher. Then he gained his supreme enlightenment, and then he sat for another long period of time wondering whether and if he could give this teaching to anyone because it was so difficult. Or you know. anyway, then he decided yes, he had to give. And so then he walked to find his former fellow ascetics, and he found them at a place called Benaz. So there the, the, he found them, and of course uh, they saw that he had renounced uh, extreme, you know, extreme asceticism, and then he gave them the, um, the first teaching called the Dhammakakra, um, the, the turning of the wheel of the law. So the, the teaching that he said is that you cannot gain liberation through extreme yogism, yoga. You cannot gain liberation through indulgence in the senses. You have to do it through the middle way, the middle path. And so it's the, the whole teaching of the middle way, which is what Buddhism is about, between the extremes. And so uh, we, we call that, uh, the Sanskrit term is Majamika. Uh, or, or, or Majamaka Pratipad, the, the way of walking the middle way. The first, the first five were the ones that came, and they were the first five monks, and you know, gradually more and more came to him for, for the teachings because of the, the luminosity, the, the radiance, the, the wisdom that he had. It was just absolute wisdom. Everything that anyone asked him, he could answer, and it was with extreme, you know, every, every gesture, every emotion was just perfect. And if you saw him, his aura, his radiance was for miles. It was, you know, it was just absolute peace and serenity around him. And so he quickly attracted followers. And then the monks were given bowls. They were ordained. Uh, they had the tonsure. They had their hair shaven. And uh, they given their robes and then the bowl. And so they were asked to go and beg for food and eat once a day. So once a day they had a meal and whatever was given to them, that was what they were to eat. So this was, in a sense, the middle way, and so the, the wandering mendicants. This story, of course, you can read in detail of any basic Buddhist book, but this is just the overview of the type of lifestyle. But the important thing, of course, is this concept of the middle way between all extremes. The first teaching, the turning of the wheel of the law, is the Four Noble Truths, and which is what he regarded as self-evident. The first of these truths is all life is suffering. In other words, um, you can have your happiness, your pleasure, and all of that, but sometimes you're just going to fall into suffering, unhappiness, misery, and whatever, and then you can go back into your pleasure and happiness and back into misery. Um, so, but ultimately, all life is suffering because you get sickness, disease, old age, all of these things cause suffering. You may start off happy and all the rest of it, but you know when the sickness happens and and then there's war and famine and pestilence and all of those other things that that afflict humanity. So even the rich can't uh, protect themselves from those things. Even kings, you know, have to worry about wars or some invading sort of army sort of coming and, and so forth. So all life is suffering. But then he said, your the cause of the suffering is your craving for phenomena. And when you crave, you attach yourselves to the object of what you desire. And whatever you desire, the object of your desire, the object of your craving, 
is impermanent. It does not last. So you attach yourself to something and it's going to die, it's going to corrupt, you know, a relationship's going to break up. It will not last. And uh, if the, the stronger you're attached to something that's not going to last, when it finally leaves you, then you're going to suffer. And so this whole cycle of, of birth and death is based on this attachment to things that are transient. And then he said, well, there is a way to be released from suffering, to no longer have to suffer. And then he called this the Eightfold Path. And the, the Eightfold Path, the formula is first is right understanding or right or perfect understanding. You understand what life is about. You learn about everything. So once you understand, you know what not to do. The next one is the right thought that comes with right understanding. The processes of life teaches you and then you think about these things. And then you manifest right speech. And right speech also means, you know, how you convey your your message, your writings, your interrelationships with other people. So the, the speech is the way you think and the way you act out your thoughts. You know, your people can get angry, mad, you know, get all sorts of emotional things. They, when they can say stupid things when they're emotional, and other times they can use speech very wisely. And all of this has to be properly thought out and balanced. And so right speech is the, the next one. And then from that comes right action. And so when you control your speech, and in Buddhism, to be wise means the proper control of speech. You don't blabber and just chat on. Later on you'll see that everything is energy, and if you're always just abusing your mouth and your emotions through talking and gossiping, then it's going to A, cause you sickness, and B, there's all sorts of reciprocal problems that come from this. You know, the whole world around you, some listens to what you say, you can attack them and they'll attack you and there's all sorts of karma. So it's quite important and right action comes from that. In other words, you do charitable goods, you help people. And if you help people, then you will be helped. And then from that comes right livelihood. You don't earn a living, for instance, through killing people and through dealing from them and things like that. You actually make sure that you have proper ethics and morals in what you do so that your life is based on a, a heap of virtues rather than things that are going to cause karmic repercussions. And then um, from that comes right effort. When you're working is light livelihood, right thought, right action, then you have to put the right amount of energy into it. Uh, it's not a matter of just simply sitting around and expecting the whole universe to give it to you. Uh, you actually have to put the effort in to make it happen, to make whatever it is that your goal is to come into fruition. It's like these books didn't write themselves. Uh, there's a mountain of effort that put into it, a lot of study and so forth. And then from that is right mindfulness. And right mindfulness is the proper approach with your meditative mind. So your mind is always rightly focused upon your effort. And then the last one is right concentration. You concentrate your mind upon the things that are matter, 
the things that matter and the things that matter is that which produces liberation from samsara, liberation from suffering. You become an enlightened being. And so your right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration is to free yourself from all those things that cause suffering and misery and hardship and pain. And then later on when you understand karma, which is of course a philosophy that's pretty universal in the Hindu and Buddhism, um, as I said, I started off with talking about karma and rebirth into animals, and I said that doesn't happen that way. Karma is uh, simply the word action, and whatever uh, action you do has its repercussion and equal and opposite reaction. So whatever you do to others in thought, word or deed, you must suffer the consequence, the same consequences. So whatever you've caused pain or suffering to others, you must receive that whatever pleasure or happiness to give to others, you will also receive that. And it's the law of karma. And karma follows you um, in the after-death state, when you die. It's all conditioned by karma, where you go to, whether you go to a health state, uh, a state that's similar to a purgatory or a asura state, or whether you go into a heavenly realm, a God state is all depending on your karma or the actions you did while you're alive, your emotions and your mind. And then, of course, your rebirth. Where you're born into, whether you're going to be born into a rich family or into a poor sort of uh, hovel somewhere in Africa or whatever, uh, depends again on the things you did while you, what you did in a former life. So this whole concept of karma comes in with this right action, right livelihood, you know, right contemplation or mindfulness, right concentration. So it's a proper understanding of all of the processes that make up life. That's the, his first teaching, the, the Dharmakakra, the teaching of the will of the law. The, the whole philosophy of Buddhism is, of course, vast. Like the, the, the Christians have one Bible. And it's all more or less in the Bible. Of course, there's commentaries on the Bible, and but more or less that's it. Whereas for, for the Buddhists, there's all these various Buddhist schools, and you know the the volumes of their texts just you know there's 108 sort of texts on the Buddhist sayings, and there's 256 or whatever is of the Kanju and the Tanju, or the you know of, of the Mahayana sutras, and you know so there's. There's masses of different types of tantras and sutras and things like that. So the teachings are quite vast, but the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, is, is pretty well consistent in all the Buddhist schools. The other thing that they teach is the concept of dependent origination, uh, pratya samutpada. Basically, these are the 12 links that um, link you into the sphere of birth and death. It basically says that everything starts in ignorance. It's, your state of ignorance is depend, tells you what you do. Uh, because you're ignorant, uh, you do stupid things. You create for yourself lots of karma. And obviously, ignorance is created with darkness, and so you're evolving to become wise and enlightened. And so to become wise is to overcome ignorant states. And in my writings, I, I talk much about ignorance and its relativity. You know, because everyone, no matter how enlightened you may be, is still ignorant to some other higher level than, than what you are. So everyone is going through cycles of overcoming ignorance, different levels of ignorance. Even if you read all these books here, you know, that 
gives you some sort of knowledge, but you'll be still ignorant on on some states, some things to do with the psychic phenomena and um, the, the tantric um, arts and things like that. There's level after level of things to learn. There's never ever an a- ending to knowledge, to awakening. The Buddha, for instance, the, the enlightenment really means the awakened one. It means you're awakened. You're no longer ignorant. Your your mind is is cognizant of everything that is happening to it at all times. As I said before, most of you are walking around with only a tiny portion of your minds actually functioning properly. You're only seeing a tiny portion of what's impacting upon you. And uh, as I said, you don't know what you're doing now, why you're sitting in this room, for instance, what lives and what did you do in your former lives that's making you come to learn now. So this type of lack of knowledge is what uh, being awakened overcomes. When you're awakened, when your mind is luminous, you will see why we are sitting here now, the lives or the actions of the past that have brought you here and where that is going to. So it's this whole stream, this consciousness stream, this santana, which you're pile up and you see the stream from beginning to the ending at any time, or the little bit of it that's in the now. I use the term eternal now, again, when we talk about being awakened. Most of us, we live in the past, the present and the future. We remember the past, what's part of our memory. You know, you can go back when you were, uh, say, a five or ten year old girl and you can sort of remember what you did then. You can't remember it all, but you can remember some of the important things and you can trace those actions right to where you are now. And, you, well, you can't really think of what you may be doing five years from now. It's not really part of your awareness. But when you live in the eternal now, you'll see the development of, of what you were when you are say, five years old. But you'll also see the projection of everything you do and everything you've done into five years from now. You'll see all of those tendencies, what I call samskaras. Now, a samskara is the actions that you've done in a former life. It's actions, these are emotions, mental emotions that you've developed that condition you in the now, that come through in the now and push you. For instance, you could have a samskara of a, of a life where you're very proud you may have been very wealthy, a, a noble, you know, a duchess or something like that, and everything around you made you proud about who you were and the power you had and the clothing and the money that you had. Now that type of energy of pride of being wealthy then will push through in a particular life. You may not be wealthy in that life, uh, but then the pride still comes through in some way. It may be pride in the way you bake food, make make beautiful cakes or whatever, or pride in you know in the way that you look, you know the the what you do to your face or whatever. It's um, this pride still comes, and this is a samskara. So you understand, and it's, it can be you know religious hatred and intolerance, for instance, or fanatical religion. 
And the religious intolerance, for instance, if you're a Christian and you couldn't, and you, you know, you're born in those years when uh, when Christians were fighting each other 400 years ago or 300 years ago, the Jesuits versus the um, Protestants, and, and they had the wars, of, you know, a hundred years war, the thirty years war, and uh, you know, you know all that whole thing, and so they're absolutely intolerant of each other, and, and you know, they would crucify uh, for, for in the name of Christ. A fellow religionist is simply because they were Anabaptist or rather than Catholic, right? And there was extreme, extreme cruelty upon those that they found, you know, this intolerance. Now, you think how many hundreds of millions of people had this intolerance, religious intolerance, and fought each other. And not just with, amongst the Christian sects, but look at the Christian versus the Muslim world and so forth, and then spread it out to the world. And so this type of religious fanaticism, this type of intolerance, then when you reincarnate, you may not be religious in that life. You may be atheistic, uh, you may be a, a scientist, but then you have an intolerance against religion. Religionists, right? You can't stand people that think there's a God. So then you're fighting this, this war of atheism of scientific materialism against these religionists. Now, it can be anything, any form of hatred that comes suddenly, you know, people have their hatreds, their, their intolerances about, you know, some type of wine, it can be just something little like that, you know, so like, um, you know, I might eat this, or, I, you know, uh, I don't like uh, Muslims right now, they're trying to breed this intolerance against Muslims, uh, because I want to go to war, and so you can see that this religious hatred comes in different ways, and these things are samskaras, and most of your life on the spiritual path is to overcome and convert samskaras, so the whole path is really to understand what your samskaras are. What is it, these tendencies that are pushing you? Tendency that push you to be emotional in a certain way, to think in a certain way, desire certain things. And the whole path to being mindful, mindfulness, is mindful of your samskaras. And when you're properly working in meditation, you're looking at all of these attributes that prevent you from becoming a properly loving person a wise person, a liberated person, in other words, one that has this naturalness of mind that lives in the eternal now, right? It's the samskaras of the past that hold you back. And those are the things that produce your testings on the path to light, on the path to liberation. Well, the testings are what I call um, initiation testings. So you can see this concept of samskaras. Samskaras comes out of ignorance and then from that, um, they develop your consciousness. And so your consciousness is based on things you've done in your past life, right? And it moulds the way you think now. So on the whole, you're transferring some scars of ignorance, some scars of attachment to material things, to the things of uh, petty objects of the desire for things that produce real worth, um, which are spiritual insights revelation of your past lives as to where you're going to the future and things like that so you're always mindful of those things in buddhism they we have the five sense organs you know touch taste sight smell hearing and the whole philosophy is based on these five sense consciousnesses they relate to the five elements earth water fire uh, ether and from these to understand fully the five sense consciousnesses 
and the transmutation into the five wisdoms of the Buddhas of meditation. And so, you know, there's the Dharmadatta wisdom, the mirror-like wisdom, discriminating inner vision, the equalizing wisdom, the all-accomplishing wisdom. So these are transmuted, and I won't go into explaining these at this stage because this is sort of like getting into vast uh, uh, philosophy. But so these are the transmuted correspondence of the, the five sense consciousnesses. So you have to understand what these are and how they transmit and therefore we have five fingers and so forth and how they control your life and how they become um, eventually just the basis for enlightenment consciousness so you become like one of these um, Buddhas in, the, in, the, in one of these tankas, they Buddhas of meditation. In Buddhism they call them the, the six organs or the six consciousnesses because the the five sense consciousnesses are integrated by the intellect, by the mind. And now in Buddhism, the intellect is just like one of those, the way that people think. It's just basically the sum of what they've experienced through their eyes, their nose, their touch and so forth. Right. So this is what they call the six consciousnesses. And of course, you know that the intellect is limiting. And where our materialistic science is, that's all they think of is the intellect and what the intellect can learn by means of the five sense consciousnesses. But in Buddhism, the, the intellect is, is itself limiting and it is a higher mind, an abstract mind. But in um, Yogacarya tradition, and they have what's called the eight consciousness and then they add to that the, the klista manas, which means defiled mind, which is really emotional mind. So you have the intellect, and you don't just have touch, taste, feeling, you have your emotion. And then the emotions come and modify all of these, and produce this whole potpourri of um, what I call can of worms, as wiggling maggots of, of desires and you know, what most people live in, and think that that is real, and people love the emotions. But it's death-dealing. The emotions are what you have to control to become wise. Um, emotions keep you into hell states. Happiness, hell, it's the same really. Um, you go from one to the other quickly, and the emotions do that. They push you one way or the other. So this is klista manas, the filed mind. And then the eighth one is called leya vijnana, the universal store of mind. And so the leya vijnana is all mind, every aspect of mind and the store of all of that. This whole philosophy is you can see it's all got to do with a proper analysis of mind and they have oh, many 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 definitions of mind and attributes of mind I won't get into that because that's what all these books are about incredible sort of analysis the western philosophers have they're just babies absolute children on the path compared to the buddhist philosophers when it comes to analysis of mind you know, Descartes etc they, they know almost nothing they were buddhists that's the reason why they gave their philosophy of mind to the West. But, you know, this because with Buddhists, it's not just the empirical mind, it's the abstract mind, and it's all of the, the psychic senses, the chakras, and the, the qualities of the chakras, and the, all of the psychic phenomena that comes into it. And of course, with the Western world, they know nothing about this. They know nothing about chakras, nadis, and all the subtle types of cities that the Buddhists and the Hindus deal with. So it's a vaster, you know, far, far, far vaster analysis of mind and what phenomena is. So from, from sense organs, then we get the contacting, feeling, craving, grasping. So all of these are part of the, the Four Noble Truths, which 
we've told you about, you know, you crave things, you grasp for things that you crave, you know, you feel things for things you crave. And as you grasp for them, it produces sufferings and your happinesses and becoming. And then eventually, because you grasp to everything to do with transience, you're born again into a world of transience. And you're born again and again and again and again into it until you learn not to grasp, not to crave, not to want these things that are always changing and that cause suffering. And that you learn that what you need is things that awaken your mind to the eternal now, to liberate yourself from phenomena, from grasping, craving and suffering and attachment to anything that is transient. You work towards that which is non-transient and the Buddhists call it shunyata, void. It's a void of everything that you, with your mind, can think of as anything. <laughs> the mind does not exist in shunyata. It itself has died. It's a, a space of of absolute beingness. And then what shines through the void is what I call the Dharmakaya. Christians can call it the mind of God, a cosmic mind. It's liberated mind. It's the knowingness of everything, all mind. That's mind of capital M. And so you go through the cycle from ignorance to rebirth, ignorance to rebirth. And of course, every time you're born again, you're born as a child and you're born in a state of ignorance, yes? You come out of a dark womb. The, the womb, from your perspective, is dark, right? But if you understand it from the point of view of what's intonating in that, it's actually a, a body of light. It's an energy field. It's an energy body. It's only dark because you think in terms of these eye sense. But if you've got clairvoyance, the fetus that is developing is, is a clairvoyant entity. It's going through a clairvoyant state into the ignorance of darkness when it is born. <laughs> That's when it gets this type of consciousness that we have now. But until it's born, it has the clairvoyant universe, the inner plane vision. When you begin to think properly about phenomena and what you are, um, using these esoteric understanding of things, you can see it's a completely different way of viewing than what our scientific materialists teach you in the way you've been conditioned. So anyway, you are born into ignorance again, and from that little child, unless you're a very, very great being, and you may sort of remember your past lives from a very early age, and there's a few people that have done that, but most of us have to go through the cycle again of relearning from ignorance. You know, you toddle on the way and you learn how to fall and then you pick yourself up and you cry and you fall again and eventually you know how to walk and then you have to learn how to not touch fire because it's pretty of course it's going to hurt you um, and the mother is helping the child to talk and you can see the whole process starts again for all of us yes and until and there's no more need to be reborn because we've mastered everything that life can teach us and then you are a liberated being, you may still be attached to the earth. And that's what a Buddha is. A Buddha is a non-returner. A Buddha is one who has learnt all the lessons of life, has mastered every aspect of phenomena, and is so far advanced uh, as far as humanity goes, that the Buddha no longer has the karma to be involved with them. The, the karma is relinquished, it's released. Because what the Buddha could teach humanity is too far away from where they are at. He must go into the cosmos to greater human beings, if you want, that have 
done what he's done a million years ago, two million years ago, uh, ten million years ago, a billion years ago. And they, his teachers, he has to learn from them. And so there's many more uh, you know, Earth spheres in this cosmos that our Earth is at a certain stage of evolution. Some may be a million years ahead of the Earth in evolution. Some may be a million years behind. You, you understand? So we're going into what I call the New Age. So within a thousand or so years, this whole Earth will be completely transformed. Scientific materialism will just be a thing of, of history. People will have clairvoyance and they'll be quite enlightened. And what I'm talking about now will be the the science of those days. What, you know, it's just natural, you know, what, what people now talk about going to work and whatever they do whenever they go to work and I don't know, whatever you watched on TV or... But in those days, they'll be talking about their the cities or what they've seen in Cosmos and, you know, it's a completely different worldview, vision, because they're enlightened. You know, the, the whole world has traveled that way. So you get an idea of um, this path ahead of you and what Buddhism is really about. Of course, not everyone in Buddhism, most, most of the monks, and believe me, I know, are ignorant of, of most of what I'm talking about here. They have the formulas. The formulas is there's the text, there's the sutra, you recite it, um, you meditate upon it, and you recite it more, but they don't really understand because they're not really great yogis. Right? They're, they're still on the beginning stages of, of becoming Buddhists. Many of the great yogis, many of the enlightened ones, have been born into Western bodies and in women's bodies. <laughs> and there's a good reason for that. Where you're going to, therefore, is to get away even from the domain of mind, from the concepts of thought, anything to do with having to use your mind to think things out, eventually becomes below the threshold of consciousness. It becomes an instinct, automatic. What takes its place is intuition, is spontaneous knowledge, spontaneous revelation. Within a, a, a fraction of a second, a millisecond, you've already seen the how, when, why and where it's going to of any phenomena that's manifesting in the now. So this, so you don't have to think about it, you already know. And then your conscious brain can work to explain to people around that are still busy thinking, living in that world of thought. And so the enlightened mind is this spontaneous, automatic generation of knowledge and awareness is where you're going to. So you understand this is again what meditation is teaching you. Producing samskaras. Now remember I talked to you about samskaras to do with such things as you know, pride and selfishness and those sorts of things. But you also have samskaras from being loving people, from being compassionate people, from being yogis in the past life. And so these samskaras is what's pushing you on to learn, to know, to want to meditate. And that's why you're sitting here, because you have developed a whole pile of these types of samskaras, which most people around you have no conception of. They're still busy learning how not to crave things, how not to be selfish, how not to wish for a mountain of money. Money is good, but it's not what life is about. There's also in Buddhism called the six paramitas. Uh, charity, you know, morality, patience, vigor, samadhi, which is meditation, trance, and wisdom. Now, these are called the great virtues. So Buddhism is all about compassion. It's not about selfishness. It's about the opposite. It's how to be unselfish, how to, be, how to give, how to develop these parameters, how to gain wisdom. And, you know, people can have a lot of money and a lot of things and, and give it out stupidly. 
and you've done your you've done the same probably as women in your relationships you've met men and and giving yourself completely to this this guy that just abused you your your gift and there's men that have done the same with women you understand and what i'm trying to get to I mean, this is one way of giving um you know but there's another way of giving is the resources your things you can give it away stupidly or you can give the, whatever you've got to give away to the to the right targets to the right people to people that can really benefit from what you've got to give and it's the same with what the energy that you've got to give with your emotions, with the time you've got. You've only got a certain amount of time, so you're not going to spend talking to somebody that's going to draw from you your time, and they're not going to benefit from it. So this wisdom and how to rightly give, that's what wisdom is. It's to know the right gift at the right time for the right purpose to produce the right result. As you become wise, you know to do the right things in a wise way, rather than to give in a stupid way, right? And this is always part of your meditation, the, the path ahead of you. And patience is quite important. That's one thing I'm still trying to learn. You know, I'd like to have more students here sitting, and I have to have the patience to, to wait and see what happens and why there's not people here, or the patience to write a book like this, which is 1,200 pages, and it takes X number of years to... You know, to, to get it through. It's, so you understand that this concept of charity, of, of giving, of patience, of wisdom, the vigor means, of course, with the energy you put into something, it's, you, know, it's, you can't just sit around and think it's all going to happen. Um, likewise with my book writing, unless I sit there every night, sometimes I want to do something else, but my book is sitting there, <laughs> and I know that unless I do it, it's not going to get written. And I have to do this and this and this and study, look at this and look at that. You've got to put energy into it. And unless you put the right sort of energy, it's not going to be accomplished. So these are the, the great parameters. And it's quite important to understand. And, and in Buddhism, the, the Mahayana Buddhism, and there's two forms of Buddhism, Theravada, which is the, it's the old form of Buddhism. It's in, in Ceylon, it's called Sri Lanka now, and other places. And they think in terms of the Ahat tradition, which is self-enlightenment, self whereas for Mahayana, it's enlightenment for all beings. So we work to help all sentient beings. And so a bodhisattva is the, the whole concept there, which is what I started with, where a, a, an enlightened being incarnates again and again, not for themselves, but so that they can liberate other people, teach them what the bodhisattva has learned. And only then, as the group grows and people learn, can the bodhisattva evolve. And so this concept of group evolution, group service, group love, is what is another a part of the whole Buddhist path. You never ever do anything for yourself, except with your beginning stages. You're doing things for others, and you evolve with the others. Together, you grow. That's our path. My main purpose, as I said, is to teach you how to become enlightened, how to gain meditation, how to liberate yourself from the thraldom of your minds.